Let's continue in the Gospel of John. So if you would, turn with me to John chapter 11. We're going to start there. And uh, while you're finding your place there, we're going to begin at verse 45 will be our starting point. And um, just a little backdrop, uh, the Lord Jesus um, have arrived in Bethany. And while he was there, Lazarus has already died. Lazarus has died. In fact, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And the family had sent out for Jesus, and Jesus has come now, and many of the Jews have come from Jerusalem to comfort the sisters Martha and Mary, and they've come out to meet the Lord, and they both at some point have said, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But then we know that the Lord also reminds Mary about the reason why um, Lazarus died. Ultimately, it was for the glory of God. Remember, the Lord took Martha through this conversation, and he's telling her, I am the resurrection and the life. And she says, that, well, I know that you are the son of God, and I know that uh, you're the one who's sent from God. But she don't really get it. Um, the Lord is wanting to let her know that this is for a bigger reason, the reason why Lazarus has, has died. And so now, after the conversation with Martha, the Lord brings Martha up, tries to get her to understand. He helps her with her faith. Um, and then Mary comes out. And Mary, fooled with tears, she triggers his emotions. She triggers the Lord's emotions. And she also uh, is having to deal with this. Um, her brother has died. And here it is, the Lord is now um, trying to understand what they're going through. He already knows what he's going to do, but he's trying to understand. He's trying to be sympathetic to what they're going through. They've just lost a loved one. And so the Lord asks her, where is he? And coming to the tomb, coming to the entrance, the Lord Jesus um, began to ask for the tomb to be opened up. And then Martha, with her um, bossy uh, attitude, uh, boys, bossy kind of behavior, just who she are, just, just a, a take control kind of person, she said, wait a minute now. Lord, he's been dead for four days. What, 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 what are we doing? Right? There, there has to be a stench. There has to be a, a terrible smell. Decay had to have kicked in. But the Lord reassures her that you're about to see something great. You're, you're about to see something glorious. The Lord is intending to receive the glory that he deserves. And so he begins by praying to the Father. He says, Father, I know you hear me. I, I, know, I know that you answer me, but, but just so that they would know, the, those who are looking and listening. And he prays. And here it is. After his prayers, he then speaks and says, Lazarus, come forth, showing his dependence upon God. Father, I know you hear me. And here we see one of the greatest miracles that have ever taken place. 
a man who's been dead for four days, arises with life. And the life that he has is from God because God himself has life in himself. And only the one who sustains life, who gives life and takes away, can call life back from death and give life to a dead man. And so here we are. The Lord says, take off the linings, strip him, get him some clothes. And then he says, in this Lazarus, this man, Lazarus comes with his grave clothes wrapped around him. And then we pick up in John 11.45, this is the response of all that have taken place. Hear now the word of the living God. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, believed in the Lord. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what what are we to do? This man performs many miracles, many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but by, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, your word, your word has been passed down throughout the generations. And here we are. Having your word in our hands, we're able to look into it and see what you would say to us that we might glean from it the truth and the treasures that are found within. We pray that you would help us now as we continue considering your word. We pray that you would Illumine your word by the power of your spirit, that your word indeed would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our pathway. Help us 
Help us, dear God, God, to grow in our faith. Help us to understand. Help us, Lord, that we might be changed. Help us to grow up into our faith, the faith that you have given us individually and collectively. And we pray that your word will go forth with power and conviction. We pray that he would even give life to the one who do not know you. We ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. For um, our title, one thing that I seen that seemed to bleed out of the text is these two groups, uh, the one who believes and is faithful, have come to faith, what I mean about the faithful, and the faithless is the one who have not come to faith. Two different responses to the Lord, and we're going to see it here. I want to go back and want us to understand the miracle that have taken place many years ago. Um, it wasn't just a mere um, it wasn't a mere CPR event um, humans do CPR but God has life in himself uh, humans work with what they have but God is able to take what's not there and create it in himself. I want us to picture, to, to, to have an understanding of what's going on. He has the ability to give life to man. Didn't he say, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. Lazarus was not on an operating table who flatlined in the middle of an operation, did not fall out at a basketball game with the first responders giving him CPR with a defibrillator standing by. None of that happened. Let's be clear. It's not even close. Lazarus was as dead as a man could be. His body had already been through the burial preparation process. He was wrapped up mummy style. He was as dead as four days would get a dead man. The stench of death had already kicked in and the aroma was filling the tomb. He was dead. He was raised up and given life. And here it is. People are mixed up about what's going on. The first thing I see in the text, this idea of saving faith, and saving faith comes only by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to establish that first. However, the Jews were mixed about whether they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, even after seeing the miracle. And so we're going to see the divided responses, people who are seeing the same things, yet coming to a different conclusion. And so in verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what the Lord did, what he did, their response was, they believed in him. According to verse 45, the people were convinced that the Lord Jesus was who he claimed to be as the Son of God, and they believed in him. These are the faithful hearers who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, faith draws us nearer to God. And the truth sets us free from the penalty of 
death. Through faith, we've been given an eternal life in Jesus Christ. You see that as we look back to something that John have already said. John has a consistency here where he keeps telling us that Christ has life in himself. And as we go to the familiar passage in John 3.16, we're going to read a little bit past that so that we might get a greater understanding. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved, Through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so John 3 and John 11 demonstrates that there are two responses, Jesus To Jesus, believe in him as the Son of God that gives eternal life to those who put their trust in him or anyone who does not believe in him as the Son of God would not put their trust in him. The Scripture says that they are condemned already. Everyone that does not believe in Jesus as the Son of God will die in sin and be eternally separated from God. So far, we've seen how people respond negatively to the Lord's salvific message and his divine proclamation. He continues to say that I am God. I am the Son of God. You can check the miracles. You can check the signs. Uh, Those are the things that will let you know that I have divine power in myself, just as the Father has divine power in himself. And he continues to proclaim that. Calls himself the bread of life. Causes blind men to see. Causes bread to come out of a basket. Causes fish to come out of a basket so that fish sandwiches could be made in the desert. It's God. Right? So he continues to show us through his word, and John keeps reminding us of that reality. Today we have a baptism. Those that are baptized into Christ recognizes that they are saved only through their belief and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross. We're totally submitting ourselves, coming under what Christ has done for us in saving us. So according uh, to our faith, we recognize that in baptism. According to our 1689 London Baptist Confession, Ventura believes that there are at least four things highlighted about the meaning of baptism from our confession. Number one, it is a sign to the one being baptized of their fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, it is a sign to the one being baptized of their union with Christ in his death and resurrection. It is three, a sign to be It is a sign to the one being baptized that they have had their sins forgiven. And four, it is a sign to the one being baptized that declares their determination to walk in newness of life. And you hear that when we baptize. We are buried with him in baptism and raised up to a newness of life. We're declaring to the world that we have allegiance 
with God now. We've, the old men have died, and now we're living for Christ. Every day we're trekking towards the celestial city that we might one day join God and be in the family of God. Oh, how we look forward to that day. A day where there would be no more pain, no more sickness and disease, but there would be life. We will live life to the fullest. And what a blessed privilege we will have in that day. And the Lord is, is exciting us. He's, he's letting us know, come unto me. Come join me and live. And so, today we will be witnesses, and Gerard will be baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We'll be baptized as a sign of his faith and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so far, we've seen the division between the Jews And according to verse 45, it is clear that without challenging the genuineness of their faith, many have witnessed the divine work of Christ and has now come to believe in him. All of their hostility and unbelief were overcome by the Lord through the miracle performed on Lazarus, who was once dead, and then by the power of the Son of God, for the glory of God was brought back to life. And here we see this idea of what the Scripture teaches us, that we're to do everything for the glory of God, and the Son was careful in doing that, and making sure that the Father would be glorified. And that's something we ought to do as well. As the psalmist say, we ought to fill the earth with the glory of God. We're to take opportunity to take advantage of everything that we may be able to do for the glory of God. Whatever we do in word or deed, do all for the glory of God. Unfortunately for some Uh, They would not believe. This is another response. Though they were eyewitnesses to the miracle that Jesus performed um, in his divine power, in his divine nature, there were still Jews who did not believe. And verse 46 explains the point that the Jews were divided about the Lord even though He gave them his proclamation and signs and wonders. The Jewish people who saw the same things as the other Jews who professed faith had a different response, and their response led to disbelief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithlessness will not draw us to God. It pushes us away and creates separation. Lies, distrust, skepticism, along with disbelief, leads to being enemies of God. Why do you think that is? They heard the same message. What would keep them from accepting the same message as the others? What would stop them in believing in the same way? We all know the answer. They share in the fallen nature of man. In today's culture, people hardly want to admit the fallen nature of humanity. Instead, we want to see others in a greater light. We want to say things about people that makes them feel good while the cancer of sin is in their bodies. How could we do such a thing? 
knowing that we have the medicine to give them that they might have life. And so it reminds us to be like the farmer and we're to share the gospel with everyone we have the opportunity to share with. We never know how the Lord is working. And here it is, God has given us his seed. But he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Let us continue to pray for more laborers. So, here we are in a society where we want to live comfortably, but sin is the reason why the unbelieving Jews and the unbelieving world today would not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture reminds us that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, according to Romans chapter 3. But, but because of a lack of faith, people don't believe this. They want to think of themselves in the way that they want to. And so what that leads us to is faithlessness that causes skepticism that leads to panic and fear. People are deceived into thinking that they are better off without God. But what it leads to, and we see it in, in our text, is skepticism, distrust, panic, and fear. An example of this is seen in verses 46 and 47. Verse 46 uh, states, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And then verse 48 says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So they understood that people were believing in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. There goes the concern. So the chief priests and the Pharisees were not concerned about following in step with the word of God. Rather, they were more concerned with keeping and holding on to their traditions and their positions and their heritage in Rome. To say it another way, they were more concerned with losing their possessions. How many of you have shared the gospel, and it seems like people are right there, but they understand that if they come to Christ, that they're going to have to give up some things. They're going to actually have to die to themselves and live for God, and that's going to cost them something. It's going to cost them being able to please the flesh not going to in, uh, be able to enjoy themselves without having the word of God hanging over them, convicting them, reminding them of the truth of the word and how the, what we do in the flesh, if it's not according to the word of God, is wrong. Going to be reminded of that. And so... What they're struggling with, these Jews, is no different from the way people live today. They either will die to self and live for Christ, or they will live for self and die in sin. We're faced again with this idea of how we respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the Lord Jesus says in, in, in the Word, uh, I remember him telling one who said that they want to follow him. Uh, let me, can I go bury my family? Uh, another one brought up something about doing something else. He says, look, those who look back are not fit for the kingdom of God. It's a reminder for us to walk in step what we've been called to, to continue to trust in the Lord. And that's what he said. 
Those who wants to be his disciples, we're to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and do what? Follow him. Follow him. So here it is. We see it now that one would either die to self and live for Christ, or they will live for self and die in sin. And in that case, they are, solved. They are the sovereign rule if they decide to live unto themselves and die unto themselves. They are the governing authority over their, their own lives, so they believe. And from this, we learn that people oftentimes, by their self-serving desires, make themselves idols. And enemies of the true and living God. And these motives are revealed in the people's actions. They were not drawn to the Lord. They operated with their flesh and they supported the enemies of Christ. This shows that they were led away to become allies with the enemies of God. This shows that the hardness of their hearts that they were willing to reject the truth despite what their heart and minds had known. They had made up their minds to just deny whatever they seen. In other words, they were suppressing the truth. They didn't want to hear it. But they knew it was true and it was real. So what did they say? What are we to do? What are we to do for this man performs many signs? They rather deny the truth than say what it really is. And that is why the Lord says, unless we are born again, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Unless we're born again, we cannot see the kingdom of God. Maybe someone here today, do you, do you know him? See, you would have responded when we leave here. And I want to, to give you a word of encouragement that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has life in himself. And the question is, is he your Lord? Is he, is he your God? Are you faithful to him? Do you want to be faithful to him? And it's a question for us to continue to overlook our lives, to see if we're walking in step with what God has commanded us to do. Are we continuing? Are we enduring? Do we still desire to love God with all of our heart and our minds and our soul? Do we desire to love our neighbor as ourselves? Do we want to glorify God in all that we do. We want to be those that are faithful. If so, what evidence do we have to prove it? What actions have we taken that agrees with our belief in the Lord? Christians know that they are saved because of their faith, obedience, and submission to Christ as their only hope for salvation, and that's what we're continuing to do. That's why we're still here today. Listen to the Apostle John again in 1 John in chapter 5, verses 19 and 21. John again says, he's pointing to this idea, and he says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is, if you ever has to um, share with someone the reason why you believe that, that the Lord Jesus Christ is God, this is a text that you would like to, you should use. John says he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 
Christians should never idolize another person. Christians shouldn't say, that's my idol. But this is a disgrace to the true and living God. God would share his glory with no one, with no one. And so that's why we say all glory belongs to the Lord. And so it is an abomination. It is disrespectful. People all day long will say, that's not what I meant. However, the statement doesn't remove the dishonor and disrespect that comes with those words. And therefore, we must do away with it if we find ourselves doing any of that. We're to repent, and we're to turn to God and begin living in the way we ought to live. When people fail to trust God and believe in him, they worry, they become fearful, and they panic. The evidence is seen in verse 47. You see it right there in verse 47. But before I look at verse 47, well, I'm going to go ahead. Let me go ahead and read it. Uh, so the chief priests... And the Pharisees gathered the council, and they said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? So as you know, this is different from what the others believe. And so we see fear is starting to kick in. A, a certain concern is starting to kick in. I want to quote A.W. Tozer. He states, fear is not the flesh. Fear, I'm sorry, fear is of the flesh. And panic is of the devil. It's, it's, in other words, it's obvious who's behind those that are faithless. But it's more obvious who's behind those who believe and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what we do will become strange to the world. J.J.M. Roberts says panic is the sinful nature. Let me restate that. Panic is the sinful failure to apply our knowledge of God to particular problems. Panic is the sinful failure to apply our knowledge of God to particular problems. So I have a couple of questions for us. What are you afraid of? What are causing you to panic, to be disturbed, and to be fearful? What causes you to worry and to want to give up and give in? In this Advent season, as we approach the celebration of the incarnate Christ, Isaiah 9 reminds us of the hope we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. That means that at our breath, we have a wonderful counselor who understands every fear, every difficult, every pain, every worry, every concern. We have a wonderful counselor. The incarnate Christ have come so that we might know him. Then, mighty God, what is it that we're trying to do? We're reminded that God is, is everlasting. He's eternal. The everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, He has reign and rule and authority over all life. So, what are we concerned about? I'm not saying that we 
won't have those experiences, but it's what we do with them that matters. Whatever it is that grips us and causes us to panic, these are the things we must entrust to the Lord in prayer so that we might take action, overcome the things that hinders us from glorifying the Son of God, and to take action. In the words of our Lord, we are commanded to apply Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, for there the Lord Jesus states, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord invites us. Come, come. How many of us really apply Matthew 11? 28 through 30, do we really go to the Lord in times of distress and despair and depression, or do we turn to someone else in hopes that they would give us something that we need? And so this is a reminder for us to remember the wonderful counselor. Sometimes this season is not good for everyone because people have gone through experiences in their lives that causes them to remember trouble and pain and heartache. And so they don't feel joyful. And so it reminds us to go back to Isaiah 9. He's a wonderful counselor. But to pray to the Lord our God. Whatever it is, We're not to allow this season to stress us. We're to keep it uh, with the right perspective. In other words, we ought to remember why we're doing what we're doing. And so, what are the areas we need to trust God more? Or do we hold it all inside? And then camouflage the way we really feel because we want to hold on to our self-righteous appearance as if we don't need anything. And so, we're all weak and all dependent upon Christ. Therefore, God should always be the object of our faith in weakness. Spurgeon states, to have something to do for Jesus and to go right on with it is one of the best ways to get over a bereavement or any heavy mental depression. So if you can pursue some great object, you will not feel that you are living for nothing, unquote. But to allow God to be our object of all that we do. In the words of Francis Schaeffer, Our trusting the Lord does not mean that there are not times of tears. I think it is a mistake, he says, as Christians to act as though trusting the Lord and tears are not compatible, unquote. The truth helps us in times of grief, but lies to frustration and panic. Instead of recognizing the truth, They rather suppress it and continue living in sin, separated from God. And in verses 49 through 52, we find hope in the one true God. In these verses, we see a strange thing happening where the writer puts it like this. In the days of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, Believers may rest patiently in the Lord. The very things that at one time seem likely to hurt them shall prove in the end to be their gain. And so that that leads us into this next idea, this next point, prophecy and the substitutionary death of Christ. The priest that prophesied to the council about the substitutionary death of Christ, we see that in verses 49 through 52. And here in those verses, Caiaphas believed that Jesus was a threat. He saw 
him as a disruptor of their plans and schemes. So rather than having a just trial, they planned for an execution. They wanted him dead. But what did they know? But what they did not know was that their evil would be of our good. For with the death of Christ comes our salvation, redemption, and hope. And what a great irony we see before our eyes. They intended to kill the one and only who can save them. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, And to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Curse is everyone who hanged on a tree. So the Lord's substitutionary death on the cross is the payment that clears for a debt. It clears us from a death we could not pay. This is the redemption we receive and now have in Christ. Jesus is the only qualified, is the only one qualified to make the payment for our sins. He is the substitutionary death on the cross that would satisfy payment for sin for those who would believe. This is our reconciliation that is meant for the faithful who believe in the Son, who works in harmony and in agreement with the Father. Because of this, we receive the riches of his grace that is in Christ Jesus. An example of this is seen in Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We are the redeemed of God, therefore we should not fear. Spurgeon states, if the enemy sin has been conquered, we shall not fear the little enemy death. And then... um, In verses 51 and 52, we see the extent of God's salvific plan to save sinners. For those verses, we see the power and breadth of God's grace and willingness to save sinners. And so here again, the Jews continue in trying to kill the Lord Jesus. So next, we see the evil schemes of man who rejected God. Again, we see the fallen nature of man who suppresses the truth with their own self-serving ideas. And so we see that stated in verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. In other words, the same story John has been telling. Nothing changed. Their depraved minds continue to be in opposition against God. Another way for people to know whether they are not, um, whether or not they are in Christ is by their attitudes, desires, and motivations. If people are not aligning themselves with Christ, then they're clearly not children of God if they continue to disbelieve in him. And so, again, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about the elementary principles that we're supposed to live by that proves that we are of Christ. And so, if people are abandoning their commitment to the Lord with ease and no longer wants to be with God's people and is starting to disown the Lord while wandering further from the truth, and entangling themselves with the world, that's not called being faithful. It's called being faithless. So this is what the the world loves. In response to the Jews, we see in verse 54, um, their wicked behaviors. And because of it, well, in verse 54, we see a response to the Jews' wicked behaviors the Lord himself. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. This verse 
just shows that it wasn't his appointed time yet for him to give his life as a ransom for many. He was obedient to the Father until his death upon the cross. He always does the Father's will. He loves doing the Father's will. And so here's some more irony uh, as we close the chapter. Uh, look again at verses 57 and 50, 55 through 57. Uh, we, we see there, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. These men were presenting themselves as having a desire to be holy while at the same time trying to kill the Lord Jesus. That's, that's the hypocrisy we see in the text. These men were in the temple attempting to perform a ritual before participating in the Passover celebration. The irony is the Passover was to be a day of remembrance of how the death angel passed over the Israelite people so that they would survive the judgment of God that was being poured out on the land. And instead of preparing to give God glory for this wonderful event that had taken place they were plotting to kill the Son of God while they were standing in the temple. After all that have happened, seeing a blind man receive his sight, a dead man being raised to life, the Jews, along with the high priest, concluded he must die. And they were right. They didn't know what they were saying. He will die. But he would die a death to save sinners. They were right, but it wasn't time. I want to close with this. Um, Psalm 2, verse 2 through 4. We're able to re reflect on this reality when we're in trouble. God in his providence does all things well. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. What great comfort we have in knowing that despite all of the wickedness and we see in the world and the unforeseen events and swift transition, our God is faithful. Our God is faithful. Amen?